My 30th anniversary here at Northwake as your pastor, and uh, you were far too kind, super kind. The notes that you wrote and the kindnesses you showed were uh, beyond deserving, so thank you very much. I think if anything, I should thank you for 30 years for letting me keep being your pastor and not running me off when I gave you more than just cause to do so repeatedly over the years, so, so I'm super grateful. And it's a, it's a joy to me that we're in the book of Philippians when that anniversary comes up uh, because you guys remind me of Philippians, the Philippian church, um, in so many ways, so many ways. Um, they were greatly loved by the Apostle Paul, as we'll talk about today. They're super easy to encourage because they're doing so well. You know, during the pandemic, um, the craziness did not stop at the door of churches, right? So I talked to other pastors and uh, other people asked me, so how are you holding up? How are you doing? And I brag on you guys. I say, North Wake is amazing. They've weathered this pandemic storm with great grace towards one another. Um, very, very, very beautiful. And so I brag on you all the time. And I feel like the Apostle Paul Philippians is so easy to encourage, so basically his message is one that he would write elsewhere to a church in a, in a town called Thessalonica, and that message was excel still more, and that's really what I want to encourage you to do this morning. Paul's words in Philippians 2 seem especially fitting, so open your Bibles, flip there on your phone to Philippians chapter 2, we'll look at a short, really kind of weighty section um, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through about 18 or so this morning. And I'll, I'll pray for us as you find your way there. So let's pray. Lord, be kind to us now through your word. Uh, we believe that it's given to us by you to express your good will and plan for our lives. And so we open it full of hope and expectation that you will help us now. Help us love you more and embrace the love you have for us. And share it with those who are in need of it all around us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So let me start with a little review of a bit of Philippians since we've been uh, intermissioning for the last two weeks. Um, so Philippians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Greece. And uh, you can see where Philippians is there. There's Turkey and Italy and right in the middle of them is Greece. And that little red arrow points to where the city of Philippi was and still are ruins there today, I'm told. If you travel there, you can see the ruins. Paul is writing them, and by virtue of his letter to them, he's writing to us, the church today, how to live worthy of the message of Jesus, that in spite of our undeservedness, we are greatly loved by God. And as we've seen in Philippians so far, Paul connects our ability to live worthy of that message with the unity of the church. Remember in Philippians chapter 1, Carson taught us this. said, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So our unity even amidst suffering, marks us as living worthy of this gospel of Christ. We're standing firm in one spirit, 
with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's the language of unity. And so in chapter 2 then, Paul sings this ancient Christ hymn, right? Heralding the humble love of Jesus um, in his renunciation of his heavenly privilege, his incarnation as one of us, his crucifixion in our place on the cross, and finally his exaltation. Now, if you missed the Philippians 2 message um, earlier, three weeks ago, let me encourage you, go back to our website, chase that down. That's the anchor of the book. Okay? And it is one of the most beautiful portraits of Jesus in the whole Bible. So if, if you, if you want to see Jesus, what he's about, go back and listen to that message in Philippians 2. But it, let me remind you of that hymn that Paul wrote out. It goes like this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it's a portrait, a painting with words of our Savior. Okay? And it is painted for our example. We are to follow Christ in this humble love that he demonstrated with his life. This, Paul says, is the mark of a Christ follower. And that's how he invites us, in, that's how he starts the hymn. He invites us when he says in verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And that, that invitation by Paul into the way of Jesus is a kinder, gentler version of what Jesus himself said to us all, to everyone who wants to follow Jesus. Jesus put it more bluntly. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. So, so in our little section today in Philippians 2, Paul's showing us how you follow Jesus in humility. What that looks like. So let's start. Verse 12 is where we'll start. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So don't, don't miss what Paul, how he, how he talks about this church. He calls them literally my beloved. Paul loves these guys in this church. It's, a, it's an expression of deep friendship and care. Right? And he talks like this throughout the letter. Back in chapter 1, he writes about these people in this church. God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And we'll see it in chapter 4. He's going to say it again. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. My beloved, the ones that I love. Paul really loves this church. And it's helpful to remember that everything he writes in this little letter is an expression of that sentiment. Right? 
He writes this letter out of love for this church. His commands, his instructions, they're expressions of his love and care for a church that he has been apart from for maybe a decade or more. This is the way things ought to be. Right? A pastor should deeply love his church. And so if the Lord should ever move you away from North Wake to another church, do your best to discern if this is a trait of the pastor there. Does he love the people? This is essential. If a pastor fails to love his church, and by church I don't mean the building, I mean the people, obviously. He falls under God's condemnation. Listen to this language from the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel as God talks about shepherds who don't take care of the sheep, who don't love the sheep. So the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, they're pastors in a sense. Thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak ones you've not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. And then in verse 10, it says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds. Those are strong words. So, It is imperative for pastors to love their people. And Paul's an example here. He loves these people. Good preaching is no compensation for its lack. Great visionary leadership is no compensation for its lack. Pastors are charged by God to love those under their care. And any pastor whose ministry you sit under should care deeply for you as Paul did for the church in Philippi. It's the mark of a true shepherd now some of you are preparing to be pastors you're in school training to be pastors and you can't wait to get you a church and preach and cast vision and lead stuff and that's awesome but if you don't have the same eagerness to love people as you do to preach and teach and lead then you're not ready to pastor Even when you graduate, you are not ready to pastor. And if you aren't willing to make steady progress in this, then you probably should find another field than pastoring, right? Paul says it with great clarity in his example. Therefore, my beloved, that little expression. And then he says, as you've always obeyed, so now... Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So again, he's encouraging this church. He encourages their obedience as being stellar both when he's with them and when he's been away. And this language of obedience, uh, you've heard it just read in that hymn about Christ. One of the marks of Christ's humility was his obedience. In verse 8, it said, Jesus, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Paul is calling this already obedient church to excel still more in their Christ-like obedience. 
And so he says to them, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He loves their obedience, but he calls them to keep excelling in it. And so this phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, does not mean they are working for their salvation. That's not what Paul is saying, right? That they would earn it, they'd be good enough for it, they would deserve it. Salvation is a free gift of undeserved favor by a loving God. No one deserves it. We only receive it. But when Paul says work out your salvation, it's more like saying live it out. Let it shape your life fully, even when it's hard, even when you suffer. Because remember, in those closing verses of chapter 1, this is what he said to the Philippian church. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So they're suffering at this point in time. And Paul's urging them through suffering, keep living out your salvation. Keep putting it on display. Keep letting it shape all that you are. And especially he has in mind that humility-driven unity that he just sang about in that hymn. Listen to this encouragement from Professor Walter Hansen. He says, When the path of obedience to Christ becomes steep and dangerous, pleasure seekers look for an easier way. Religious tourists hunting for sensational entertainment, instantaneous enlightenment, and emotional excitement will jump on the newest rides and take quick shortcuts, but they will not be found with pilgrims on the long, hard road following in the footsteps of Christ, who was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul's call to unflagging Christ-like obedience will not be popular in a world that so highly values going fast and having fun and so quickly rejects enduring pain and submitting to authority. But the essential characteristic of the wise who build their community on Christ is their consistent obedience to him. And again, the backdrop for the obedience Paul's calling them to has to do with humble unity, being one. It's a radical commitment then here at North Wake to pursue a humility-fueled unity here with the people in this room, okay? And then Paul adds this little phrase. He says, work out your salvation, your own salvation, with fear and trembling. And that connects to the next verse where he says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this humble way of living out our salvation, it's a thing we're urged to work at on the one hand, but in the very next breath, Paul says, God does the work. So how do you fit together those two ideas? He puts so close. We work and God works. Um, First, think about that little phrase with fear and trembling. Put, Put positively, there's a sense of awe. When we step into the work of God himself, as we walk in this way of humble unity, we're walking in God's plan for us. And that's awe-inspiring. But negatively, if you resist walking in this humble way of Jesus, you're resisting the very work and will of God himself, which ought to make us fear and tremble, right? This we are to work at, 
and yet it is God's work. And those sound conflicting to us, but clearly in Paul's mind, they just sit right happy right next to each other. Um, these thoughts have been most helpful for me. They're from a pastor long ago named John Murray. He says, God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor are working suspended because God works. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation, as if God did his part and we did ours, so that the conjunction or coordination of both produced the required result. God works, and we also work, but the relation is that because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us. We have here not only the explanation of all acceptable activity on our part, but we also have the incentive to our willing and working. The more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that all the energizing grace and power is of God. And this is why Paul puts these two ideas together. They're meant to go together, right? Listen to how he says it elsewhere. Listen to Paul working and God working in Colossians 1 where he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, God's energy, that he powerfully works within me. So in one sentence, Paul says, I struggle, I toil with God's energy. And they go together like that. The psalm writer put it this way in one you might be familiar with. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So we are dependent upon God. This is our great comfort, right? The burden is not solely on us. God is at work, even, Paul says, giving us the will to work in this Christ life. One writer said, God is the great originator of human willing as well as human working. So you are not on your own okay, as you follow Christ. God is doing the work, giving you strength, enabling you to follow Jesus. And Paul has a particular shape that this humble Christ following, this working out of their salvation, is supposed to take in that church in Philippi. And it's a really good word for us here at North Wake these days. Look at verse 14. This is what he wants them to do. This is a shape it's supposed to take. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That, that's it. Right? I mean, you're thinking, come on, Paul. All the stuff that should mark a Christian, right? Um, hope, faith, integrity, purity, generosity. And you pick, don't grumble? Pretty much. That's what Paul says. This is to mark the followers of Jesus. They're in Philippi, here at North Wake. And he paints it with a broad brush. Do all things without grumbling. Do church, no grumbling. Do your home life, no grumbling. Do school, no grumbling. Do work, no grumbling. Why is this the mark? Well, it seems like it was a bit of an issue in Philippi, at least kind of a budding one, a simmering one. Um, this may be why Paul keeps calling them for unity, be one. Right, he did it in chapter one, he's done it in chapter two, he's gonna do it again. This may be why he takes such a strong stand against selfish ambition and self-importance in chapter two. And then in chapter four, he actually calls two leaders out by name and says, you guys need to agree. Right? So there's something going on in Philippi. 
Philippi is a beautiful church by all measures, but it ain't perfect, right? They're being pressed to grumble, maybe amongst themselves, maybe against Paul, um, and ultimately, because of that, against God himself. So Paul heads this temptation to grumble off at the pass, it seems. Um, I think he also chooses this because he knows we're really good at grumbling. Um, There are no parenting seminars that go, here's how to teach your child how to grumble about things in your home that you do for them out of the goodness of your heart with all of your money, right? There, There aren't parenting seminars that teach that. You don't need them. There aren't marriage seminars that say, here's how to complain more steadfastly about relatively insignificant little things, right? We don't need that seminar. We're good at grumbling. It comes to us naturally. And and look, let's just be honest. I know you grumble about our church and her leaders, okay? I know you do. Alexa is not the only one listening. I'm, I'm just kidding. I know you do because you have me as a pastor. So of course you grumble, right? There are things I do that make you want to grumble. Um, That's no surprise. It's also no excuse, right? Paul says, no grumbling. Even if Larry's your pastor, no grumbling. So a while back when Apple released one of their uh, new models of the iPhone, Um, It it sets off alarm bells uh, at 5 a.m. in Austin, Texas. Uh, People line up to buy these iPhones, right, because it's the latest, greatest. And amongst them are workers uh, who line up from a company called Teardown. And they uh, sent three workers out to buy three iPhones, and their thing is they tear the iPhone down. They completely break it apart. This is, what they, this is what they said. We took a screwdriver, we tore them apart, one of their analysts says. We wanted to know every detail of everything that's inside, who the supplier was for every component, wire and screw, how much it cost to make. Over the next 12 hours, the battery, cameras, display, materials, electronics were analyzed, priced, and the information is rolled into a spreadsheet. And the quick turn report was shared that day with Teardown's clients who include tech manufacturers, financial investors, resellers, attorneys. They use the report for patent infringement cases. Engineering teams study their from dime ideas. Over the past 15 years, Teardown has broken down more than 2,000 products, tablets, digital cameras, camcorders, notebooks, um, gaming consoles. And every product the company has dismantled dating back to the first digital music players and GPS devices, is stored away in what the company calls its morgue, right? So they keep them all there. But here's the thing. You don't work for teardown. You work for buildup, right? That's, That's what we do. We don't tear down one another. Paul commands us elsewhere to build each other up. Now I know, I also know that you grumble about our leaders because I do, okay? I'll come home from an elder meeting and I grumble. Come home from staff meeting and I grumble. And I need to be clear. 
It's not. It is definitely not that we have sorry staff and sorry elders. I mean, our staff and elders are amazing, right? I would put them up against any staff or elders of any church I know without hesitation if that wasn't such a stupid idea to begin with comparing church leaders, right? So the reason that I grumble is not because they're sorry. It's because I didn't get my way, right? That's what makes me grumble. And they should listen to me, for gosh sakes. I have 30 years of experience. I'm probably wiser than them. I have a way better sweater vest collection. Why don't you guys listen to me? I don't know, you ever feel that way about our church? If they just listen to me, what's wrong with those guys? And because you are like me, Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. All things. And so with his language of grumbling, he's taken them back all the way to the early pages of the Old Testament. When God's people were being delivered from slavery, hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt. And they had to pass through the desert and it was hard in the desert. And they started to grumble. Exodus 14 tells a story. All the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose another leader. And go back to Egypt. You can cue Keith Green so you want to go back to Egypt right now. Okay. The, real, the reality of it is, is that grumbling never flows from a place of humility. And it is always divisive. There was a study done recent, recently of medical teams and how they work. And especially how they interact. And what they found was that if the doctors spoke rudely to their staff, right, both accuracy and performance in surgical teams decreased. So if the doctor is proud and arrogant and speaks that way to his staff, your life is in bad hands, they're saying. Um, lead researcher said relatively benign forces of civility incivility among medical staff members, simple rudeness, we could say grumbling, have robust implications on medical team collaboration processes and on their performance as a team. Rudeness and lack of kindness, grumbling, we would say, undermine people's ability to think clearly and make good decisions. It steals confidence and weakens motivation. Grumbling is toxic to medical teams and to churches. And as a result, others will suffer. And that's where Paul goes next in verse 14. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. He says, the people who end up suffering from your grumbliness are the onlookers. The people who live in our neighborhoods and work next to the cubicle next to us. They're on our soccer teams. 
And they hear us grumble and complain, just like people who have no God they can trust with their troubles. So he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Church, work, school, you name it, no grumbling. When we express trust in God when things don't go our way, when we find things to give thanks for, when things are not as we think they should be, when we do that instead of grumbling and complaining, that, Paul says, is what makes us shine as lights in this dark world. I love the way uh, the story Pastor Tony Marie in Raleigh tells it. He says, in a recent sermon at our church, he pastors at Imago Day in North Raleigh, he says, my friend and hip-hop pioneer William Branch, also known as the ambassador, talked about an aspect of hip-hop culture. And this is what the ambassador said. Hip-hop knows glory. They know that glory is meant to be seen. Glory is meant to be displayed. Hip-hop has an embedded conviction. If you come from nothing and finally get everything, flaunt it. Right? Thus, we hear slang terms like floss, swag, and shine. So if you got it, flaunt it. Or in the words of the New Orleans-based rap crew, Cash Money, get your shine on, he says. In this passage, Branch says, Paul tells the church, get your shine on. Right? By, mask it, by making the glory of Christ known in a dark and twisted culture. And Paul says, the way that we shine is by working out our salvation, refusing to be caught in a whirlpool of grumbling and complaining that's so pervasive in our culture. Right? Just read some blog comments sometimes. It's the air we breathe, right? What divides us, what frustrates us, must be swallowed up by what we have together in Christ. World War II era pastor um, and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. He said, Christ above all is the unifying center of our life together. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that's vital between us. We have one another only through Christ, but through Christ we do have one another, holy for all eternity. It's interesting, um, one of the commentaries that I'm working through, it's really helpful, is by a guy named Walter Hansen, and he wrote this commentary in 2009 before all the divisive politics really exploded in the last decade. So 2009, this is what he wrote. When Christian conversation is laced with complaints and personal attacks, Christians have lost their distinctive quality as the children of God in a world characterized by that same kind of negative tone. He was writing for us today. As Jesus put it, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So North Wake, let's put our shine on, right? Not yield to the temptation to grumble and argue. Rather, let's let thanksgiving and kindness mark our speech in all things, every arena, 
And Paul says central to our ability to do this is that we hold fast to the word of life. That's what he says in the next phrase in verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. We, we don't grumble or dispute holding fast to the word of life. We can only follow Christ in this humble way by being people of the word, people who open their Bibles in the morning and at the end of our day, and we call it to mind in between. Pastor John Piper has his great analogy. He says that life and power, health and fruitfulness are mediated from God through his word, the Bible. This is the way he's decided to do it. If we stay away from the word, the light will grow dim. The word is the fuel of our lamps. You shine holding fast to the word. You shine holding fast to the word. The word is the fuel of your lamp. Don't starve the wick of your lamp by not soaking it in the kerosene of the word. Keep your wick in the word. Hold it fast. Give yourself to it. Hold it in your mind and in your heart. Every day. Okay? This is why every day we open the Bible and ask God to speak, teach, and guide us. Now what follows in the rest of our passage is again remarkable display of affection for Paul for his people in this church. He says in verse, the rest of verse 16, um, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the, if you give me that next slide please. There we go. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The worthwhileness of Paul's ministry is inseparably tied up with their humbly working out their salvation in unity with no grumbling. And they matter so much to him that he would count it joy if his life were poured out like a drink offering on their behalf. And this calls to mind what Jesus did. He he poured himself out. He emptied himself, right, in that Christ hymn of chapter 2. And so Paul here is following in the way of Jesus and inviting us to do the same. See, for Paul, it's like it was for, for the Apostle John. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So for Paul, their faithfulness is everything to him. He would pay with his life for that joy. And he says they should rejoice in his suffering on their behalf as well because it's an expression of his love for them. Such is the love of pastor for church and church for pastor that he would urge them in this humble way of no grumbling, that he would pour out his life for them if need be, just like Jesus emptied himself. So, Northway, let me urge you this morning, same Christ-following humility that Paul's asking the Philippians to do, right? Resist the urge to grumble and dispute. Do all things without grumbling. And, and you are doing so well at this in a really grumbly time. But let me encourage you, excel still more. You don't get a pass for what you post online, okay? It's not okay to grumble in your posts. Don't grumble online. Don't grumble about your church. Don't grumble about politics. That's a tough one. All things, right? Don't grumble about masks or the lack of masks. 
See, it denies your trust and hope in the greater goodness of God. It divides the very body of Christ here at North Wake. It dims your witness such that neighbors can't see Christ in you. So ask yourself, does this post build up or does it tear down? Is the flavor of it giving thanks or is it grumbling? And as we approach the Lord's table this morning, I'd like us for to, to spend a few minutes getting ready simply by confessing our words that have been grumbling or argumentative or divisive. Now, the Lord's Supper at North Wake is symbolic of how much our God loved us that he would send his son to die on the cross for our sins. And if you are a follower of Jesus and you um, believe this and you're walking in fellowship with him, you're willing to confess your sin as you come to the table, then you're welcome at this table. But if you're not yet following Christ, then this is a great time just for you to take a few minutes and pray and think about what does it mean for me to follow Jesus? Am I willing to follow Jesus? Could this be the day I choose to follow Jesus and trust and hope in him as my savior who rescues me from my sin? So, Again, I'll invite you to come forward in just a minute and take the elements and take them back to your seat and wait until all are served. And today especially, that's a visible symbol of our unity together in Christ. We'll all take it together. And again, we'll use the center aisle and the wall aisles to approach the table and then these two aisles to return to our seat. <clears throat> and if you would, just allow a little bit of space as you come to pick up the elements together. But let's, uh, let's begin with just a time of confession and I'll guide us through it. The book of James says, do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. So Lord, we ask for mercy that we would that you would help us to not be complainers against one another and against you. We'll hear our confession now. Lord, you've also written that we are in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Lord, if there's anger in our hearts, if there's frustration we're letting take root there, have mercy on us now and forgive us. Lord, if we're given to quarreling about matters of lesser consequence, give us patience, give us understanding, help us to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Lord, may no corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it might give grace to those who hear. Lord, mark us here, each one, with joy always, ceaseless prayer, constant thankfulness in all circumstances, and no grumbling, for this is the will of God for us in Christ Jesus. And now we remember together um, the Lord's instructions on the night on which he was betrayed. 
He told us to take bread and take the cup and remember him in this way. So the table's open now for you to come and receive the elements and then return to your seat and wait and we'll, all, we'll take all of them together.